gosh, I, if I would have known, so I'm not here, I would have looked up the year. I want to say it's 1540-something. Um, but what happens is, uh, what year does the Reformation start? Does anybody know? The Reformation, if you don't know, is when the Protestant church started. And as we start talking about the church, I'm going to start saying some things about Protestants that might be a little uncomfortable. And I, every year I have this resolution that I always apologize for that, and I make caveats about how they're wonderful people, they're amazing Christians, which is all true. And I'm going to try not to do that too much, because I hope you know that I respect them, and I wish them no ill will, but we disagree about things. And if, you, if I don't teach you why, you'll never understand what the church's teaching is and why we have difference of opinion. So I don't mean any ill will towards Protestants, but I think they're wrong. If I didn't, I would be a Protestant. Fair? So Martin Luther starts the Reformation, which is what starts Protestant churches. If you have met Christians who are not Catholic, almost certainly they are Protestants. Protestant churches did not exist until the year 1517, and even then they didn't really exist. It's really not till the later part of the 16th century. But what gave birth to the Protestant churches was Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg in 1517. Um, so think about the context. So that's, that's the Protestant Reformation. What will happen there is Catholics and Protestants, the beginning of Protestantism, they will fight for 100 years a year. And what will happen is the Catholic Church will essentially be cut in half. And if I had more time today, I would have looked up all these numbers, but I didn't. But the church is essentially cut in half. So Our Lady of Guadalupe, so in the meantime, right, people are exploring the Americas. And all of us kind of have learned a little bit more about this history, I think, in recent years, is there's great atrocities. Now, I would, I'm not a real historian, so I wouldn't die on this hill. I think we're in a little bit of a reactionary mode. The, the Christian and mostly Catholic explorers in Mexico and other parts of Central America, there are great sins there. There are real problems. Right now, we're really big on that. Um, the Aztec Empire practiced human sacrifice. Do we all know this? as a very real thing. And it was not like a small part of their culture, it was a very central part. And there are some really, I don't know, I don't want to go too deep into it. There's some really dark things. Here's what happened. So there's a lot of atrocities by Catholics and other Christians that come over. And they're trying to make the peoples of Mexico into Christians. They fail miserably. No one is becoming Christian. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like, as I always say, when Canada invades, and they're like, you will all play hockey, I'm going to be like, screw you, Canada. I am not playing hockey, right? Like, it kind of makes sense. Evangelization fails. No one's becoming Christian. And whatever, does anybody, did anybody look up what your Our Lady Guadalupe was? 31, thank you. Um, I was kind of close. 11 years, right? So 1531. And I love this. And this is, this is going to touch on broader topics. One that, that's really important. But anyway, 
So what happens in 1531 is Mary appears to a very poor uh, Mexican. I, they wouldn't use that term at the time. Um, St. Juan Diego. And what happens, right, and so Mary, and this is a really important Catholic principle we're going to get to, is that when Mary appears, have you ever heard the critique? It's really big right now, actually, that whenever you go to, like, different churches, Jesus always looks like me, or he looks like he's from Scandinavia. He's, like, super white and, like, blonde hair. I, I actually agree with that critique. I think that's, like, kind of ridiculous. But... Anyway, one of the Catholic principles is that Christ is universal. And so Mary, when she appears to Juan Diego, um, what happens is there's a snowfall in Mexico City, what is now Mexico City, which is rare. And I think it's on December 12th, and that's why the feast day happened. But anyway, he, Juan Diego climbs this hill, and on top of the hill are a bunch of roses in full bloom. And that's why he goes, because he's like, this is weird. Why are, at this time of year, there should not be a bunch of roses here. While he's there, Mary appears to him. And she appears as one of, that, one of the people of that land, right, as a Mexican. Um, she speaks to him. He doesn't fully know what's going on, which often happens in Marian apparitions when Mary appears. Uh, people don't know what's happening. And she says some very beautiful words to him. She says, you know, do not be afraid. And one of the famous lines she says is she says, am I not here who am your mother? Um, she's pregnant in this image. Um, I don't think we have it down here, but it's probably upstairs. She's pregnant in this image. I would encourage you all to look it up. Um, but... This image is, in, is incredible. Mary Pierce, she's, she's a native. Uh, she's pregnant. And there's amazing things within this image of Mary. So anyway, Juan Diego doesn't believe her. And when, but Juan Diego, or Blessed Virgin, says to him, she says, I want you to tell the bishop that I would like a chapel built on this hill. So he goes and tells the bishop, <clears throat> and the bishop won't believe him. Which, by the way, neither would I. Right? Sometimes people come to me sometimes, and it's nothing against you. Maybe this has happened to you. Maybe it's real. But I'm just skeptical. If someone, people come to me sometimes like, FB, Jesus appeared to me. And I'm like, smile and nod. Uh-huh. It's very sweet. Maybe it did. I doubt it. I'm skeptical. It doesn't happen very often. Right? So the bishop doesn't believe Juan Diego. And he says, I need a sign that this really is the mother of God who's appeared to you. So he goes back, go look up the story, it's amazing, and at a certain point, Juan Diego picks all those roses on the hill, and Mary says to him, this is the sign. So he picks him up, he puts him in his cloak, and he goes to the bishop, and he lets loose these flowers, Castilian roses, which are not native to Mexico. Um, he lets them out, and when he lets them out, he thinks that the sign is the roses. When he lets them out, I get emotional about everything. <laughs> Gotta save his own. Don't ever be a priest. 
And he lets them all out. And when he lets it out on his tilma, which is his cloak, is the famous image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Do your homework. I would encourage you to look this up. I am not a Christian because of miracles. I think it's a really stupid reason to be a Christian. The New Testament does not teach that's why you and I should be Christians. We talked a little bit about that. I don't think if you're looking for a miracle, you'll ever really be a Christian. But they can't help our faith. The tilma, which is Juan Diego's cloak, is one of the most amazing artifacts in all of human history. It has been examined by scientists multiple times. It is unbelievable. You would assume that the image there is painted on. It's not. The image of Our Lady Guadalupe is not painted on the tilma. The tilma is made of cactus fiber. It should have deteriorated long ago. It hasn't. It has miraculously survived numerous fires. And one of the more famous ones was during the persecutions of the Catholic Church in Mexico about 100 years ago. Someone went in and put a bomb in a vase of flowers right in front of the, the tilma to destroy it. And it totally survived, and you can still see, go online, you'll see it. They still have, like, the, um, some of the candles that were around it. One of the candles bent 90 degrees, you can go and see, from the force of the explosion. It was further away from the bomb than the tumble was. The tumble is unscathed. Um, Mary's eyes, and there's just so many cool things about this. If you guys haven't gotten unformed yet, by the way, this is on there. Go to form.org and you sign up. We have a free subscription through our parish. And when you're like, is FB full of you know what? The answer is yes. But not on this. Go look it up. Colorado Springs. Oh no, that's I'm thinking of something else. Never mind. There, there are numerous centers around the world where people are scientifically dedicated to studying things like this. It will blow your mind. Mary's eyes are uh, anatomically, is that the right word? Correct, which they didn't know at the time that the Tomo was came into existence. There's there's all these fascinating things. So, but here's the, the really cool thing. So the evangelization of Mexico failed. It was completely failing. No one was becoming a Christian. When Mary appeared to Juan Diego, Mexico converted. And I, if I had time, if I had thought of it, I would looked up all the numbers. The conversion of Mexico is not about what people did, it's about what Mary did. Mexico, like, Mexico has problems, I'm just going to say this. The Catholicism in Mexico needs to grow, it needs to be deepened, and it needs to go deeper than just, there's a little bit of superstition sometimes in, in people in Mexico. That's a broad statement. But Mexico is one of the most Catholic countries on the earth. It identifies as something like 98% Catholic. Um, we don't study this in history books because the Enlightenment taught us that religion can't be part of history. You, it is unbelievable. So go look it up. December 12th is the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and it is absolutely miraculous. It's incredible. Okay, before we jump into our topics, questions about anything and everything. Okay, I have a question. Yep. Okay, so I was watching 
I'm kind of geeking out. Good. But um, so I was watching EWTN, uh, Faith and Tradition, Father Pasha, talking about the Eucharist. Okay. And somebody asked him a question on the tri on the rapture from Protestants. Yes. And he gave an explanation for Catholics that they don't believe in the rapture. Or, Which is correct. So in the so, what is the explanation behind Matthew twenty four when Jesus is speaking about the um, what will come prior to the tribulation? And he says, two men will be in a field, one will be taken up, one will be left behind. Two women grinding a millstone, one will be taken up, one will be left behind. Yep. So what, what is the Catholic explanation for that if, I mean, I understand that the idea of the rapture didn't start occurring until 1500s, 1800s. Yeah. And, but, I mean, from the idea of whether or not people will be taken off the earth prior to the... Thing. Do they believe that, or do they not believe that? And if not, how do you condone it with? How do you reconcile it with what Jesus said? Great question. So, <clears throat> big word there is rapture. So the rapture, what that means, it's a Protestant belief that before. So there's something where at the end of time, Jews believe that when God returns, there will be a time of great suffering. Um. <clears throat> they believe, and they call it the Great Tribulation. By the way, when we get to prayer, we'll talk about this. This is the prayer. This is the word in the Our Father. And when we get to the Our Father, we'll talk. There's, a, there's, the Our Father is one of the hardest things in all of Scripture to translate. Believe it or not, in the Our Father, it says, "Lead us not into." Yeah. So the word there is actually is not temptation. It can mean temptation. The normal Greek word for temptation is philipsis, which I always think is kind of fun to say. Philipsis is temptation. The word at the, in the Our Father is parasmos. Now, parasmos can mean temptation, but almost certainly it doesn't mean that in the context of the Our Father, and we'll talk about that. But basically, so the Jews believe before God returned, there would be a time of great suffering. And if you've ever wondered why would God lead me into temptation and why do I pray for him not to do that? You ever wondered that? I hope so. You so. have the strength to not yeah. be tempted. But, but why would God lead us into that? And, and the real answer is that that's not what the prayer is. The prayer is really about the time of great suffering. So the Jews believe at the end of time there's a time of great suffering and then the, the fullness of the kingdom of God would arise. Very brief, we're not going to go deep into this. One of the things the New Testament is really getting at is that Jesus enters into that time of great suffering and takes the tribulation on himself for the kingdom of God to break into this world. And the cross, Jesus' sufferings are tied to the kingdom, right? On his head, or he's crowned on the cross. John 12, 24, he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. That's an image of a king being lifted up and his subjects coming to him. Um, on his, above his head is, is INRI, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That's written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, Catholics don't believe in the rapture. And what the rapture is, is that very late, 
my understanding of it is actually at least 18th, if not 19th century. I'm a little rusty on this. But the, the rapture is the idea that before this time of great suffering comes, that everyone who is righteous and is a good Christian would be taken out of the world so they wouldn't suffer. And then this time, this great suffering and judgment would come on the world. If you've ever heard of the Left Behind books, oh, yeah, read the whole series. that's what this is based on. <clears throat> so the Left Behind is about the rapture, and it's about that phrase that you cited in Matthew 24. One person will be at the mill, another will be in bed. There'll be two, two men in, the, in, in beds, one will be taken, one will be left behind. Um, two problems with this, and without going forever, the two problems, Catholics, there's three problems with this. One is that Catholic, right now we live in a culture where something new is like really cool and we love it. And in the Catholic world, truth comes from Christ. And so when something's brand new and we've never heard of it before, it's under suspicion. So no one has ever heard of the rapture until at the very, very, very earliest 200 years ago. I, my understanding is actually much newer than that. Um, that's the first problem. The deeper problem, I'm going to figure one of the three. Oh, the second one, this is also not as deep. In context, Jesus compares in that passage. He says one will be left, one will be taken, one will be left behind. And he compares it to Noah. Here's the problem. If you use Noah as the paradigm, in Noah, the ones who are left behind are Noah and his family, who are the righteous ones. The ones who are taken in the flood are the wicked. And so to, to read Matthew 24 and part 13 this way, and to understand it this way, you have to reverse Jesus' image. I don't know I would go with that one. He basically killed everybody besides Noah. But they're taken. As opposed to taken. Um, so, 2437. So, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. So the first point, I guess, would be in context. This passage isn't about the rapture. It's about people are doing all the ordinary human things they do. They're having parties. They're getting married. They're doing all this stuff. And no one was ready for the day that God sent the flood. So the first, the context is actually about being ready. And that's what Matthew 24 is all about. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus right there says... The coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. People weren't ready. Some were left behind. Some were taken. Then two men will be in the field. One is taken. One is left. The modern Protestant read of this is God saves people out of suffering. And those who are wicked are left behind. Now, it's a technical point, but if, you, but if Noah's analogy holds... Those who are left behind are not the wicked, they're the righteous. And Jesus explicitly says it will be like the days of the son of, or like the days of Noah. Think about that. I, I understand it takes a little bit of time to like wrap your head around that, but I actually like I've heard that from lots of different scripture scholars, and they all say that. If you're actually going to use that image the way it's used in Matthew 24, 
the ones who are taken um, would be the wicked, not the righteous. So it falls apart there, but the most devastating thing is, is very simple and very profound. <clears throat> the Protestant idea is that God saves us from suffering. That contradicts all of the New Testament. The idea is that God loves us, and this is part of the health and wealth gospel. God loves you. He wants you to not suffer. Now, God doesn't want us to suffer. Of course, he doesn't want that. But the Christian message is not a message of God loves you, I'm going to make your life easy. I'm going to keep you from any suffering. That's not the Christian message. Jesus' message is not that he saves us from the cross. It's that he saves us through the cross. And all over the New Testament, his line is, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and come follow me. And so the Catholic read is that the way that Jesus saves us is that you have to like it's it's actually going to hurt, but everything in life that matters does. Everything. Patrick and I were talking about this today on the podcast. Is that when you love someone, and actually for you to become a better person means you have to lose your life. When you get married, when you have kids, when you do anything anything in life that matters means you have to surrender something and let go. And the irony is that that is how you find joy in life. And so people will talk about this. They're like, Brian, Father Brian, how come you're, you can't get married? Aren't you miserable? And the answer is yes. <laughs> For other reasons. <laughs> no, it is hard. It's hard to be celibate. It's hard not to be married. I, I, there, I would love to be married. The key to happiness is not having things the way you want them. It's to love something enough that you won't lose your life for it. And so that's the Catholic response. It's way too long an answer, but I think it's a pretty darn good one. Any other questions? Steph, Patrick? Yeah. I don't know how this relates, but... <laughs> good intro. There's some confusion about the COVID vaccine with its allowed to use a vaccine that has a link to abortion. Yep. And specifically, some vaccines use aborted cell lines. The COVID one, as far as I know, understand understand was tested on aborted baby cell lines. Yep. Thank you for asking an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> so the real quick quick answer, I'll try to be quick on this and then we get we gotta move. So there's there is an answer to this. We're actually gonna be sending this out to the whole parish soon because so here's the thing. The question here is about participation in evil. So like we know this in our justice system. If, um, so if, if my cousin's going to rob a bank, I'm like, well, I don't want to rob a bank. Can I hide him in my house? What if my cousin robbed a bank and my family's poor and we can't make our mortgage payments and I'm terrified for my family and my cousin says, Hey, FB, why well, wouldn't be FB if I had a family? <laughs> hey, Brian, I know that you're struggling financially. I've got a lot of money, and I know that he robbed a bank. Can I accept that money? Yes. 
It's a tough question, isn't it? You don't have to have the answer. It's a tough question. I wouldn't lean towards no on that one. <clears throat> but, but this is a little bit like that. So the church has lots, has a very long history of thinking very deeply about not just how you feel about something. My, I remember I took a philosophy course at CU, worst course ever. After I actually studied philosophy, I was like, that guy should be fired immediately. Because all we did is we read about a controversial subject, and then we just debated. That's not philosophy. Philosophy is learning how to think. And we literally just debated on super controversial issues. Okay, so with this one, vaccine, vaccine lines, and we'll get to this, is, is can, the, the basic principle is um, if someone does good, but they do evil to accomplish a good, is that okay? And the church is going to say no, right? Because the ends don't justify the means. The ends, that's what that phrase means. The ends do not justify the means. But this question, what the answer is going to be, and sorry for a long response, the answer is going to be it's okay to get the vaccine. And the best Catholic thinkers out there are all universally saying this. And the reason is some vaccines are developed from, from stem cells, from aborted children, we think that's a really bad thing. Because we believe all life is sacred, and that, and we'll get to this when we talk about abortion, we'll talk about why Catholics are always pro-life. We will talk about that. But just because there's a good result doesn't mean the whole thing's good. Right? If... Um, you can think of a thousand examples of this, right? But like, if I wanted, my, my usual example is, if I want to help Children's Hospital and I want to help find a cure for cancer for children who have cancer, no one would object to that. But what if I went around and I killed 10 people and I stole all their money, so I did an evil thing so that good could come about? The church would say you can't do that. But the, the vaccine thing is this. Those, these vaccines, if they're developed from aborted um, stem cell lines, the facts of the matter is that those, the stem cell lines that vaccines that come from aborted stem cells are from, are from the 1970s. So with COVID right now, companies have generally stopped I don't know all the facts on this. I will give more because this is really important. Um, but we don't have new lines of vaccines. You can't kill a baby to have a cure to help other people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's a great effect. We all want to help people. We don't want anyone else to die. You can't kill someone intentionally and say, we need to kill you and use your DNA so we can help other people. No one is currently aborting children for the sake of developing vaccines. And so the church has a long line of thinking on this, and they've thought very, very deeply about this question. And there's different principles we'll talk about. There's one called the principle of double effect. But basically, it has to be proportionate. And so last, last example would be this. Basically, how the church looks at this right now, and I've read a fair amount on this, Starbucks is one of the most pro-abortion companies on the planet. 
So I know a lot of Catholics who will not go to Starbucks. They absolutely refuse. And what the church would essentially say is, we should all fight for a world where I can just get a cup of coffee without my coffee company promoting serious evil. But if you go and get a latte at Starbucks, you didn't commit a sin. We're, you're so far removed from the act of the support of abortion. And if we followed a principle where we said, anyone who ever does something evil, I can't associate with them. Good luck. Even the abortion issue, which is, in my mind, one of the most serious. I, I get so frustrated. I'm like, is there anyone who doesn't support abortion? Anyone, aside from the Catholic Church. And so the church is like, we have to fight. So then at the end of the day, this is a hard question. At the end of the day, the church has said, with vaccines, all of us need to put, to vocalize our voices and say, we have amazing scientists. We have amazing people working in medicine. You can develop vaccines ethically. But that if you go and get a vaccine, you are not doing something immoral. Even if you know. And that's, this is a really important question. I wasn't prepared to answer this tonight. But the, the bishops just sent out something to, on that exact question. And so I can follow up with that. We can send that out. And we will be sending that out to the whole parish, in fact. Because it's, it's a very relevant question, obviously. Okay. Can we move? Does anybody need a break? How many people need a break? I feel like when I ask this, people are like, don't raise your hand. <laughs> if you need a break, we have a hall pass. And I'm just kidding. Yeah, Patrick. No, I need a break. Oh. <laughs> you would say that. Okay. So here we go. So let's hit authority really quick. And this is one of the biggest questions. So we might, we might come back to this in our next class, whenever that is. Um, If you're coming from a non-Catholic background, but a Christian background, which many of you, I imagine, are, the normal way to think about Christianity is about me and Jesus. That's important. We all need to have that personal relationship and to be connected to him. He's a person. He is not an idea. He is God himself. That hugely matters. Um, but what I want to show you tonight God loves communion. God loves communion. And I don't, I don't mean just the Eucharist, but that the deepest desire of your heart, the deepest desire of my heart, is that I would be loved, and I would love others, and not in a sh simple, shallow way, but to the absolute depth. By the way, this is another reason why I will never be an atheist. Atheism tends to be reductionistic. It tends to say, it tends to reduce a human being to something less than what they actually are. Biology is amazing. Chemistry is amazing. Science is, physics, it's amazing. I love it. I believe in all of it. 
But the deepest thing in my life is the desire to be loved and to love others. The Christian believes that God is a trinity. Right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the, we believe that the reason that that is written into your existence and the reason why you will never be happy if you don't have that, you can never be happy. Right? I, there was some headline I saw the other day about some guy who owns like 98% of one of the Hawaiian islands. I'm like, damn. <laughs> Does he need a priest? <laughs> That'd be amazing. You would never be happy. You would never be happy, and you know it. You were made for this. So... God, Christianity, God wants us to have relation with him. But the way that the church has always spoken of this is that that communion, that perfect union of love, is that God wants to draw us into this. And so that when I love Jesus, and by the way, right, the New Testament commandment is to love him first. But when I love Jesus, I find that I don't just love him, but I'm brought into the family of all those who love him. So why Christians call each other brothers and sisters. Sometimes it's really tacky, it's, and we should work against that. Right? When some guy you never met before is like, brother, you're like, don't touch me. <laughs> but really, the church is meant to be a family. Okay. Why did Jesus, and what we're going to talk about tonight is authority. And I just don't know how you argue against this. But, the, but I also want you to understand the authority is not for itself. Authority is for communion. That's massively important. Authority is for communion. Patrick and I talk about this a lot on the podcast the normal way to think of Catholicism is it's just a bunch of rules. And some guy in Rome who doesn't know anything about real life said, you know, let's not eat meat on Fridays. <laughs> and a billion people across the world are like, oh, crap, right? That's a, that's a caricature. Authorities for communion. Parents have a God-given authority with their children for the sake of a communion of the family. To love them and to build them up. Okay. So God wants to draw us into that. Um, so why, does it, why did Christ start a church? Last week we talked about Matthew 16, 18. We should talk about one thing with that. If we have time, we never do, but we'll try. Um, why did God start a church? He did not start it Merely so someone would have authority and say, that's right, that's wrong. That's, that's part of it. Truth matters. Right? And again, you've heard me say, and you're going to hear a lot of my testimony about why I'm a Catholic. One of the reasons I am a Catholic is because the truth doesn't change. And part of the reason Jesus founded a church was so that his teachings would not change and they would endure through time. And he promises the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would guide that church and keep it from teaching error. But that's not the fullness. The fullness 
is communion. It's about this. And we're, our next section we're going to get to is going to be sacraments. If you get this, you'll understand sacraments. The, the reason Jesus Christ founded the Catholic Church and what the sacraments are about is that God doesn't just want you to obey him. You ever love someone so much that, like, you just want to, like, almost, like, be in them? The, the, the early Christians, they have a word for that. It's perichoresis in the Greek. And perichoresis means a mutual indwelling. Like, if you have two liquids and you pour them together, almost as if the two liquids inhere inside of each other, it doesn't really, it's not the best analogy, best I can think of, deal with it. Um, that's how they describe the Trinity, is that the Father dwells in the Son, the Son dwells in the Father, which is what Jesus says in John 14 and 15. And then he turns to us, and he says, this is a great passage we're citing, John 15, you know this passage, I am the vine, you are the branches. So in John 14, verse 9, he's talking to Philip in or verse 10, and Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Perichoresis. And when you really love someone, right, people like poets talk this way, right, a poet, poets will talk about when they talk about love, they're like, it's like my heart was in another person's chest. That's the Trinity, perichoresis. What Catholics believe is that what God is doing in the world is that when Adam and Eve fell and when the world was divided, Tower of Babel, right? Everything splits. Sin divides us. It makes us not trust each other. It causes fear and disunion, hatred, all these things. God wants, this is what the church is about. The church is about communion. It's about bringing people back together, which is why Pentecost is the opposite of Tower of Babel. Okay. Where am I going with this? So in John 15, so Jesus says in John 14, 10, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. In John 15, verse 3, well, let's do verse 4. 15, 4, Jesus says, Abide, right? And the, the word there is menin in Greek. Sometimes they translate it remain, but it literally means to make your home somewhere. That's the Greek verb menin. Abide in me, right, in me, and I in you. We're going to get to this with sacraments. The reason God gives authority is for the sake of communion. And when you really love someone, you don't just want them to do what you want them to do. You want that communion. You want to love them so much, it's almost as if your life is lived inside of them. Right? Parents, they always say this. Parents of their life vicariously through their children. You'll do that. And when you were a kid, you didn't understand. You're like, Mom, stop it. Right? And then you become a mom and you're like, I just, honey. Right? And you become your mom. 
You're like, damn it, I'm a mom. <laughs> right? That's what happens. Okay. So here we go. So authority, God, God only gives the authority of the church for the sake of communion. So to give context, last week we talked about Matthew 16 and 18 where Jesus gives authority to St. Peter. Okay, here we go. Authority matters. So this is all over the Bible, everywhere. So in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world, one of the things he does is he names things. So God, um, God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Evening and morning, day one. In Genesis 2, one of the things that happens, among others, is that God has Adam, he has all the animals in front of Adam. You know what Adam does? Adam names all the animals. There's a connection there. And, and the connection, if you come from a Bible kind of background, it's really with Genesis 126, 27, is that Adam and Eve are the image of God in the world. And as the image bearers of God, they come to share in his role. Okay, so here we go. Whirlwind. The, the, if you're coming from a Protestant background, the normal way to think of things is that it's God is all-powerful, and why would I need anybody else? Right? And, like, and one of the questions, here's a, here's a one-liner, right? Like, isn't Jesus enough for you? If Jesus is, if he's God, if he's all-powerful, if he created the stars, why would you need somebody else? I'm going to show you why you need somebody else tonight. And essentially because it's the way that God has ordained things. So, all through the Old Testament, this is the paradigm. So, in the Exodus story is an easy one. We could, do, we could do Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all this stuff. But the Exodus one, we all know that. So, in Exodus chapter 3, God calls Moses, and he says, Moses... Um, I need you to go, and I need you to go in front of Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, right, did you ever sing the song? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, oh, let my people go. Okay, I'm not going to sing it for you. Um, but he tells Moses, go talk to Pharaoh, go do this. Here's, my, here's a very easy question. Does God need Moses? Of course not. Of course God doesn't need Moses. He's God. God, one of, the, one of the Catholic, a very basic Catholic intuition is that God doesn't need us, but God loves to work through people. He loves to work through people. So he sends Moses. So then Moses... Moses says to God, he says, you know what? I have a stutter. Do you guys know that? Moses has a stutter. and he can't, He's like, I can't go speak to Pharaoh. I have a stutter. Right? And if I were God, I'd be like, okay, stutter gone. He doesn't do that. One of my favorite things to pray about, I've given a sermon on this one time, one of my favorite things to ever think about is that Moses begs God to take away his stutter 
Moses had to stutter the rest of his life. Not because God's spiteful. But you know why I love that? It's because what he says to Moses is he says, I will send your brother Aaron with you, and he will speak for you. You know why? Because God loves communion. Imagine if, right, the thing that I want and a lot of us want sometimes is you want to be good at everything. I know the answer to every question, right? Like, I'm good at every single area of expertise. I can play every sport. I can create any piece of art. Blah, 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 blah. Our weaknesses are meant to make us need each other. I love that. God loves communion. Okay, a prophet. Can anybody tell me what is a prophet? How would you define a prophet? Have we talked about this? No. What's a prophet? How would you define a prophet? You're all thinking the same thing. Don't call don't, on me. <laughs> I just don't want to answer until somebody else. <laughs> okay, help me out. Somebody else answer. What? Someone who God speaks through. Okay, good. Yeah, usually people say someone who knows the future, but that's a better answer, actually. A prophet is someone who God, who speaks for God. Does God need someone to speak for him? No. God works through people. That's what a prophet is. A, God, a prophet is someone who speaks for God. Uh, all through the Bible, in the book of Numbers, there's people who challenge Moses, and they say, how dare Moses assume this authority? And God rebukes them. He's like, I have chosen Moses as the one that I will speak through. This is the way the Bible works. So in the New Testament, and this is, this is everywhere, but in the New Testament, the same thing happens. Same thing happens. And so uh, in Matthew, for instance, so in Matthew chapter 10, we'll start with 1 through 9, um, the first part of Matthew, the first nine chapters, Jesus is born, he's baptized uh, in Matthew 3, Matthew 4, he's tempted by the devil, he comes out, and in Matthew like 4 through 9, what happens is that Jesus has been uh, proclaiming, the first thing he ever says is he says, repent, the kingdom of God is in hand. Repent, the kingdom of God is in hand, that's Matthew 4, um, 4.17. Um, he heals the sick. He raises dead people. He casts out demons. That's what he does. He's doing all those things. In Matthew 10, Jesus says this. He says, he names the 12 apostles. And it says in Matthew 10, 5, Then the, these 12 Jesus sent out, charging them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, which means non-Jews, Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which is what Jesus has been preaching for, through Matthew, from Matthew 5, or 4 even, through 9. Heal the sick, which is what Jesus has been doing. Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Those are all the things that he's been doing. So Jesus does all these things, and then he sends out the 12 to go do that. Why? Because God loves to work through people. Why are you here tonight? How, I'm, I'm not going to really make you answer this, 
And how many of you had a vision from God or the Blessed Virgin Mary that at one point said, go to RCIA? And you're like, what's RCIA? <laughs> None of you had that. Maybe one or two. If you did, don't tell me. It'd freak me out. Um, you're here because of someone else. Somehow God has been working in your heart and in your life, but you're here because someone invited you here or someone told you to come. God works through people. In Luke 10, and here's one of the, my favorite passages where it's very explicit here. So Jesus sends out his disciples. In Luke 10, 16... Luke 10, 16, Jesus says this. He says, um, he says, he who hears you hears me. Now listen carefully. He who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So in other words, you're God the Father, Jesus, all over the New Testament, says he is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God's really like, look at Jesus. 